There's much more to talking about bail than just bail bondsmen and money bail. There's the entire process of arresting someone, deciding whether to give them a citation, custody pending sentencing, diversion, all kinds of other things going on that I think are opportunities to explore. But what they're trying to do is make these bail decisions more based on evidence, which is an admirable goal. It's just what are the inputs you're putting in and are you preventively detaining people? And that's where the problems come. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams coming to you from a sunny Southern California. I write a legal blog named May It Please the Court and have two books out titled How to Get Sued and The Sled. Our co-host Bob Ambrogi recently retired from Lawyer to Lawyer. We're in search of guest hosts who can join me to discuss current legal topics. If you're an attorney and you're interested, feel free to reach out to our producer, Kate Nutting. Her email is kate at legaltalknetwork.com. And before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. You can try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O dot Well, the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution states excessive bail will not be required or excessive fines imposed or cruel and unusual punishment inflicted. On August 28th this year, 2018, Governor Jerry Brown of California signed into law the California Money Bail Reform Act, more commonly known or started out as Senate Bill 10. This legislation eliminates cash bail, replacing it with a risk assessment of an individual and will go into effect in October of 2019. After a two-year push, SB 10 was approved largely with Democratic support, but it faced heavy opposition from many, including, not surprisingly, the bail industry. In addition, original co-sponsors of the bill, including the ACLU of California, changed its positions after an 11th hour change to SB 10, claimed the bill granted too much power to the courts, creating racial biases and disparities that permeate our justice system. So today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss bail reform, the recently signed California Bail Money Reform Act, and its future impact. To do that, we've got a great lineup of guests today. Here to discuss today's topic is attorney Jeff Clayton. He is the executive director of the American Bail Coalition, a trade organization comprised of national bail insurance companies that are responsible for underwriting criminal bail bonds throughout the United States. The organization's primary focus is to protect the constitutional right to bail by working with local and state policymakers to bring best practices to the system of release from custody pending trial. You can find out more about Jeff and his organization at AmericanBailCoalition.com. And in the meantime, welcome to the show, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. You're welcome. Our next guest is attorney Shima Boffman, a professor at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law. She is a national expert on bail and pretrial prediction, and her current scholarship examines criminal justice policy, prosecutors, drugs, search and seizure, international law and terrorism, and race and violent crime. Her recent book, Exploring Bail, is called The Bail Book, a comprehensive look at bail in America's criminal justice systems, and is out by Cambridge University Press. 
Welcome to the show, Shima. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, Jeff, let's start with you. Maybe you can give us a little bit of a background about SB10, how it got started, what its original purpose was, and what this last-minute change did to it. Absolutely. The original Senate Bill 10 started about two years ago and was intended to increase the number of persons released from California's jails without having to post a financial condition of bail. In other words, call a bail bondsman or post their own financial assets. What happened eventually is the legislation was amended with two weeks to go in the session in quick succession and eventually became law. And what the bill does now is sets up a system of basically low, medium, and high risk and then assigns bail based on an algorithm into those three categories. Category number one, you basically go home, which is pretty much the low-level misdemeanors for which there's no bail today. The medium risk cases will be mass supervision by state agencies, and then the high risk cases will get what's called preventative detention. And so that's sort of the basic architecture of what the new Senate Bill 10 does. It will also create a system of sort of pre-conviction, probation, pretrial services programs throughout the state of California to handle the load of all these offenders. Shima, how does this change the current bail system in California? How did it operate and how is it working now? Sure. I mean, the plan is that it's basically stopping the reliance on money bail in California. So instead of you know somebody that's charged with a crime and is arrested having to go to a bail bondsman to pay money to be released, they can be released, as Jeff said, if they're in one of the categories that allows release. So it would dramatically change the system because California, like most other states, relies primarily on money bail at the moment. And Jeff, what's the objection to this? I mean, why is the uh, bail association upset? Obviously, you're going to lose customers. Sure. Obviously, the industry will be completely wiped off the map. But for me, I fight for the right to bail in addition to the right to use a commercial bail bondsman because I don't believe in the system of preventative detention. I don't think history has proved it has worked. And certainly prior to 1987, nobody thought it was constitutional. The reason the ACLU and most of the other groups traditionally that would support bail reform are on the other side, and there's 55 plus of them that have joined a coalition against it, are against it because we're expanding the power to detain people without bail at all. And that's a dangerous proposition as we've seen, you know, the tripling of pretrial incarceration in the federal system as a result of giving prosecutors and judges these expanded powers. So this system completely eliminates the need for bail? I mean, there is no bail at this point forward from 2019 on? Right. I mean, the system will essentially make a decision about whether you get out or not, and that's it. And when you get out, the system will decide, you know, whether you're on supervision by the state, an ankle monitor, drug screening, and all that sort of thing. And what we see in the New Jersey system upon which this is modeled is the middle is huge, meaning most everybody who gets out is going to get some version of supervision by the state. Shima, how does this play into the Eighth Amendment? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of amendments implicated, but I think preventative detention, you know, it was constitutionally prohibited before the 1980s with, with U.S. v. Salerno. But even now, it should be very limited in its use. So the only time that people should be detained before trial is when there's no reasonable way to release them safely. And that's a high bar. I mean, the judges have to prove that, look, there's no way to release this person in a safe way. And so what California is essentially doing and why the ACLU and others are having problems with this bill is that, and you know, I myself have problems with this bill because it does allow a large number of people to be detained preventively and not obtain release at all. And so whereas California's former system was bad for the poor, it was bad for minorities in some ways, the new system is bad for a lot of people because 
I mean, there's a lot of people that just by nature of what they're charged with cannot obtain release. And that's troubling. What about the 10-day right to trial? I mean, can't all of this be avoided by the defendants simply invoking their right to trial within 10 days? They can. I mean, as you know, criminal trials are kind of like a unicorn nowadays. I mean, 95% of cases plea, and so very few cases go to trial. And in fact, there's what's called a trial penalty. When people go to trial, they often are punished by prosecutors with larger sentences. So it's usually not in a defendant's you know, incentive to go to trial. So, Jeff, let me have you take the other side of this argument. I mean, what was the need? Why was there a cry for bail reform? How did this whole thing get generated in the first place? Well, I think most of the arguments in criminal justice reform around poverty are basically just, you know, arguments of class warfare that the wealthy guy has it much better than the poor guy in our society, which is, you know, what the 11th Circuit said in setting this wealth-based discrimination theory that underpins all of this doesn't fly. But I think that's really what it is. For my money, I think my cohort on the show would agree there's much more to talking about bail than just bail bondsmen and money bail. There's the entire process of arresting someone, deciding whether to give them a citation, uh, custody pending sentencing, you know, diversion, all kinds of other things going on that I think are opportunities to explore. And we've seen that due process issues where, you know, people in uh, South Texas can't get in front of a judge to get their felony bail reformed when they have an attorney in less than 30 days. Stuff like that that's just egregious abuses. And so, you know, I think it's a rich area for scholarship and, you know, looking at policy changes for that reason. Let's talk about that, Shima. What are the policies behind this? What are the social policies that we're playing with here? Sure. I mean, bail, I think, is really the key to reducing mass incarceration. I mean, we have excessively high incarceration rates. And if you look at just looking at pretrial incarceration or detention, it's gone up 72% since 1990. And, you know, why is that? Why are we detaining a lot more people pretrial when crime rates have nationally gone down? And it doesn't really make sense. And so it's just a lot of bad policies and a lot of cities and counties that are dealing with, you know, systems that are antiquated and they're not really using proper metrics to get people out. And, you know, what California is trying to do, which is admirable, and a lot of other states have done this in more successful ways, I think, you know, and some of this, you know, we'll see. There's a lot of let's see, wait and see, because a lot of these reforms are new and we'll see if they increase the, you know, effectiveness of this. But what they're trying to do is trying to make these bail decisions more based on evidence, which is an admirable goal. It's just, you know, what are the inputs you're putting in and are you preventively detaining people? And that's where the problems come. So, Jeff, were the people in the private jail system in favor of this no-bail system in the terms of they, it increases their incarceration levels? Well, I don't think the private prison or any of that, you know, industry really had much of input on this. You know, the reality for mass incarceration and on the bail question is, you know, crimes on bail are generally fairly low across the board. Time periods are really short, particularly in misdemeanor cases, you know, 30, 90 days until they plea out. And so while I think, you know, bail is a is a main opportunity to look for improvement, I think the rest of the system needs a whole lot more work than bail. Well, Shima, there have been some pretty prominent objections to this, among them Erwin Chemerinsky coming out against it and saying it's unconstitutional. What's your thought about whether this is going to survive muster? Yeah, I mean, the system, you know, as declared by one California appeals judge in California was unconstitutional. And some of the problems people are having is that when release from trial, which is a basic fundamental right under due process, is based on how much money you have. And, you know, a judge unknowing will set a $200 bail, for instance, in a lot of jurisdictions. And some, a lot of defendants don't have $200 to even pay to get out. And so 
you know, if we're discriminating for people that are equally situated, you know, with a criminal charge and some people are not able to obtain release just because they don't have money in their bank account, that's where the Constitution comes in and says that violates the Due Process Clause. It violates Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and also um, the Due Process Clause of the the 14th Amendment. So that's where a lot of litigation nationally has kind of taken root. and, And there's a lot of other systems that have said, you know, this is unconstitutional, that we don't have this right. And kind of to put it in context, we are the only country besides the Philippines that allows this right to be released before trial, this, you know, while you're presumed innocent, to be based on how much money you have. It's, you know, we're very alone in the industrialized world in this. Jeff, what's the bail industry's response to this? I mean, what is it that the bail industry wants to see in terms of the law and how would you change SB 10? Well, I think the fundamental heart of the bill is unconstitutional under the California state constitution. I mean, let's just get down to brass tacks. The two other states that did this had to change their constitution because the constitution says everybody has a right to bail with very limited exceptions. And so to say that we're just going to wholesale deny bail based on the state laws put in the constitutional cart before the horse. And so we think that's an inevitability that the entire scheme is unconstitutional and would not withstand scrutiny, we wouldn't think, aside from issues of whether the current system is constitutional or not. And then the second prong is, obviously, our industry, in cooperation with others who are helping, have launched a signature drive to put the issue before the California voters. And the signatures are due toward the tail end of November. And the way things are going, it looks like we have a pretty good chance to make that happen, which would uh, essentially put the law on hold for two years and uh, send everybody back to the drawing board. Well, it brings me to another question, but before we move on to our next segment, we're gonna take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and we're joined by attorney Jeff Clayton, the executive director of the American Bail Coalition, and attorney Shima Boffman, a professor at University of Utah's S.J. Quinney School of Law. Well, Jeff, before the break, we were talking about this bail segment and what two other states had done, New Mexico and New Jersey, having to change their constitutions. It looks like California may have to do the same thing in order to get this. But you were talking about a proposition to put on the ballot. Do you think that Californians are going to vote against this? What's the polling showing at this point? Well, it's too early for that. And just, you know, you have 90 days from the day the governor signs it. So you have to scramble and you don't really know what the outcomes were. I would tell you that one of the reasons that counseled us to go for it was really the support of the 55 civil rights groups who came out against this legislation and are still railing on this legislation to say that, yeah, there's all kinds of solutions to the bail problems in California, many of which we have solutions to, which were ignored. But I think this is just a bipartisan bad idea. And I think that's what encourages us to go forward. And I think that will be the ultimate undoing of this legislation. It's not only that it's unconstitutional, but that people on both sides of the aisle can agree that it's just not the right solution. And Shima, you know, Jeff is saying that the bail industry thinks it's going to be eliminated, certainly here in California, if this turns out to be the case. But 
What has been the reaction of states across the country? Are, are state legislators clamoring to uh, get this enacted or to look and wait and see? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of states that have moved towards eliminating money bail. I mean, four other states have eliminated it and others have taken drastic steps like New Jersey, we, we talked about, towards it. I think California's approach is not the best. I think, again, it's unconstitutional, the preventative detention scheme. I think the risk assessment instrument that they're advocating is too stringent. It will prevent a lot of people from obtaining release. And the goal of bail reform nationally has been to release more people. Like we talked about, these people that are being put in for small offenses, not dangerous people, but just put in, you know, into jail, end up staying there for, you know, months and years. And it ends up just clogging our system. It costs a lot of money. And and this is why states are, you know, uniformly visiting their bail policies and trying to change that. But what California maybe didn't see in this bill is that you know, what they're going to do is actually detain a lot more people and cost more money. And so I think it is worth revisiting. And, you know, I think the initial goal of eliminating money bail is a great one. I think they just need to figure out how to do it in a way that we can release more people safely. And it's done. It's been done by lots of states. I mean, D.C.'s kind of been doing this for over 30 years. They have, you know, 80 percent of their people pretrial released with 80 percent not being rearrested and appearing for their court dates. I mean, that's the kind of numbers that we like to see. And I, when I look at California's law, it doesn't seem like that's what's going to happen. How does the risk assessment system work? So as Jeff said, it's, you know, they'll put people in categories of low risk, middle risk, medium risk, or high risk. And every state has different instruments. There's lots of different risk instruments, and they're not all created equal. So for instance, some of them, you know, if you're a male and, you know, you're charged with a violent crime, automatically you're detained. Right. I mean, just based on your gender, just based sometimes by, based on your age. Um, if you're charged with a certain crime, sometimes you're just automatically detained. Um, if you don't have employment or if you don't have a cell phone, those can add factors, you know, numbers to your riskiness. And, you know, if you don't own a home, I mean, there's a lot of things that can discriminate based on race, based on age, based on gender. So there's lots of problems with risk assessments. I mean, they're not all good. You know, you have to be really have a good risk assessment instrument. They're overall a good thing. But, you know, California's is very aggressive. Jeff, what's the industry's response to this? I mean, what proposals does the industry have out there that is an alternative to cash bail and the current system and something that might go part of the way? Well, I think the bail schedules in California are way too high. I think everybody's agreed with that. Part of that's economics and the way the bail industry is regulated in California. It's the cheapest place per dollar to get bail anywhere within the United States. So a $50,000 bail, typically, uh, you can put no money down and walk away uh, with, you know, obviously at the contract that you signed, but a lot of those Premiums are never collected. So reducing the bail schedules was always one. And I think, two, uh, looking at due process issues, the idea that somebody can sit for two, three, four days without seeing a judge, 2018 is just plain wrong. And I think everybody should be seen with 24 hours if they can't post bail by a bail schedule. And they should have a right to a risk assessment if they want one. If they want to be assessed and present more information to the judge, that's fine. And so we were advocating to speed up the process. There's also stacking of bails and charges in California, which is another area where judges can use that as a tool. If somebody has five charges to then you know, stack all those bails and make the bail five times as high to keep people into jail. So we had you know, a list of reforms that we wanted to see and to try to bring the system into balance and to take the pressure off of 
this idea that if you're poor, we're just going to send you to a government program and electronically shackle you, that that's the answer, and that bail could play a role in any of those cases where it'd be least restrictive for some of these defendants. So that was our plan, but obviously we got rejected. Well, and, you know, there have been some horror stories that are out there. I mean, you take the famous one of, I think, Brian Corbett, who uh, was a bail bondsman that pocketed $2.5 million in fees over a year and a half in northwestern Mississippi basically on DUIs or the small cases. How does the bail industry respond to that? What would you do in those instances to kind of curb that abuse? Well, obviously, we've supported uh, stiffer regulation industry in California. Of course, I always like to point out that the clerk of the Philadelphia Superior Court was on the take for their cash bail system and probably stole a whole heck of a lot more than that. But there's always bad apples, I think, in every industry. And as an industry, we want to weed those people out. And right now, the California Department of Insurance, we think, does a fairly effective job and you know, we've been working with them to try to get them additional resources to go after some of the bad apples. Shima, is that the main objection to cash bail? I mean, the odd distribution of the benefits to the wealthy and the uh, people that are scamming the system? What have been the objections to it? Yeah, the biggest objections to money bail are just that it's unfair. It's that people charged with the same crimes because they don't have money can't be released where others can be released. I mean, someone that's wealthy has no problem dealing with a $100,000 bail. Someone that's poor can't get out. And so in that sense, it's both unfair, but also allows sometimes high-risk people out, you know, people that might be really risky. If a bail bondsman wants to insure them, then they can. Those people can be released. And so there's that danger that people are also concerned about. So, I mean, those are the two biggest objections. The other big one is racial, right? That black defendants and minorities are often offered bails at three times the amounts as white defendants. And I mean, that's not fair, right? And, and oftentimes they're not able to obtain release because of those high bail amounts. Jeff, you know, the Eighth Amendment itself says that excessive bail cannot be charged, but Therefore, I'm assuming that the industry is saying that since there's excessive bail, there has to be some form of bail that's available under the Constitution. Is that within the industry's position? Yeah, and certainly that's the ongoing challenge brought by former Solicitor General Paul Clement to New Jersey system that most likely we'll hear shortly. We'll probably go to the U.S. Supreme Court you know, on that very point as to whether you, know, you have a constitutional right to bail. We think you have a right to bail in California. We think that's indisputable. We think it does mean money. And, you know, obviously, you know, it can be more than bail bondsmen as well. We've seen states that don't have bail bondsmen, but there's still a fundamental right to bail. So we think on that point, you know, we're correct that there is a right to bail. And obviously, you know, legislators and judges can sort of decide how expansive it is or isn't. How does that position play out in the current jurisprudence, Shima? I mean, I agree that fundamentally under the Constitution and under current law, we do have a, a right to bail. It doesn't have to be one that's based on money, though. And so a lot of you know jurisdictions have applied that and allowed for pretrial release programs or other types of release, conditional release, where you sign documents saying, I won't do X, Y, and Z, and I can be released, or other types of monitoring. So I fundamentally agree with Jeff on that, that we, we do have a right to bail. We need to preserve that. It doesn't have to be and probably shouldn't be tied to money because of the unfairness that results. And you know, we're one of the few countries in the world that has this kind of privatized prison system, this privatized bail system, this ability for people to benefit off kind of the misfortune of criminal defendants. And that's, that's a problem. Jeff, how many bail bondsmen are there in California? Uh, there's around 3,500 licensed agents. We're estimating the total workforce to be somewhere probably around 15,000 total workers. Both government and private? Oh, no, those would be all the private, the folks that work you know, on the staffs of the bail agencies and that sort of thing. So if you add 
the licensed agents plus their staffs. We're thinking it's about 15,000 private sector jobs that will be wiped out. Wow. Well, it looks like we've just about reached the end of our program. We'd like to take this time to invite our guests to share their final thoughts and their contact information if they like. So Shima, let's turn to you. Sure, yeah. So Shima Boffman, I, I'm easily found on the University of Utah's website. And you want to learn more about bail, you can look at my bail book. It's called The Bail Book, and it's with Cambridge. So I appreciate you having me on. Thanks. Great. Jeff, your final thoughts and your contact information, if you would, please. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on, AmericanBailCoalition.org. Click in the news for all our most recent stuff pleasure being on your show. It's going to be an interesting issue, I think, for a long time. Well, perhaps when we get into 2019 and after this has been in place for six months or so, we'll have you both back on and and revisit uh, what kind of disasters are occurring at that point, if any. Great. Well, that brings us to the end of our show. If our listeners like what you hear today, please rate us in Apple Podcasts. You can also visit us on thelegaltalknetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer. Produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Som. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.